This episode is sponsored by allpublicart.com, which is one of my favorite websites to discover new artists and check out public art around the world. Any artist can join for free. One of the best features of this site is an interactive map showcasing thousands of artwork in public spaces. It's actually a great way to discover inspiring public art in your area. All public art is also available for download as a mobile app in the Google Play Store and the Apple App Store. On this episode, we have Regina Herod. Regina started her career studying theater at Juilliard, but redirected her life to her childhood passion of art. Regina evaluates themes of oppression drawn from current events, which she portrays through sculpture and through the process of encaustic painting, relying on drawing over burnt wax to share her narrative. Regina, can you take me back to your very first memory of making art? My very first memory of making art was as a kid. We were living in San Antonio, Texas, pretty unsupportive parents uh, in terms of art, so they would not buy me supplies or anything like that. And I remember seeing uh, a whole bunch of discarded large boxes, like chopped up refrigerator boxes and all kinds of things. And I knew that my neighbor had a whole lot of tape because her kid would always bring it out. And I started taping boxes, like as a sculpture. Of course, not knowing that years later it would become part of who I was. <laughs> um, that's my one of my earliest memories. Another memory I have was making ashtrays for my father because back in the day it was glamorous to smoke. Um, but as an artist, um, I think claiming myself as an artist, um, it was really at City University of New York taking those early drawing classes and printmaking classes, working with basic things like monotype. Um, just, it was, it was incredible, and I would just get lost in the space of it um, very, very quickly. Yeah, but I've always been a maker, you know, from a very young age. How old were you when you began making sculptures with boxes? Oh, I think it was maybe, I must have been like seven, eight something like that. I have a vague recollection of at some point cutting holes into some of the larger boxes so that we could sort of st stick our head inside. And But it was crazy the kinds of things you would make meaning from and you didn't even know what you were doing. We took those boxes at a certain point and propped them up against the side of the apartment building. So it was like if I were to interpret that now, I would see sculpture on the side of a building without knowing anything. You know, when I was younger, I never, when I was really young, I never went to museums or anything like that. So I had no idea of what that meant, except that it felt really familiar and good. So. Now, you mentioned not having a lot of support from your family, um, and I know that your father was in the military. Do you think that played a role in their being non-supportive? Well, um, my father, yeah, you know, he really admired and respected grit and tenacity as it applied to um, building wealth and things like that. Um, my first endeavor which has sort of filtered into my art practice now was theater. I went to school as an actor with kind of lofty ideas of what that meant and um, very quickly 
or relatively quickly quickly got out of that and then decided to go back to school for art and my father's reaction was you had a chance before what are you doing that's not going to get you anywhere um we can't support that you know so in a, in a sense they kind of cut me off um but i think later in life he really began to understand that part of me and it was almost like a silent agreement of acknowledgement between the two of us. He just understood that that's who I was. And I think he began to make his own connections to the way I lived my life, the things I would make, the way my house was, just everything about my life. You know, I think he got it. Wow, that's really great that you had that kind of resolution with him. Um, it's really so important. Um, and please uh, share with us about this time when you began studying acting. Um, I got into Juilliard at 18 and I was in the glow of feeling like, oh my goodness, I did this and I'm going to go and finish this program and then I'm going to become a big actor and all of these very juvenile, unrealistic ideas. Um, I really did love acting. Um, but at the time, it was the early 80s, and they would do this thing where they would cut you from the program after two years if they didn't feel that you had what it took or whatever. And now, in retrospect, I know that a lot of that was about the idea of actors of color and was it possible for them, them to be in a classical world of acting, uh, which was what the core of their program was at that time. So long story short, I was cut, I left, I kind of meandered around um, doing small acting things here and there, and then abruptly stopped and needed to claim something else. And um, I remembered that I loved art. I was always making stuff. I, you know, even in high school, without formally always taking classes. I was always doodling, drawing, cutting up stuff, making jewelry, you know, whatever it was. I didn't even know what it was. Um, so I started to go to the City University of New York up in Harlem and had some wonderful drawing teachers not really having formal instruction. And that's where it began, you know. Printmaking um, there at the time was highly charged politically. Um, and I really credit that with fostering my initial, like, oh my gosh, this this is it kind of thing. I never went back. Wow, that's really, um, gosh, I'm just sorry that you had to go through that. Um, really doesn't feel fair at all. Um, I guess I would love to ask, um, can you see any threads of your uh, initial study of acting and, and your love of acting and that coming out uh, in your artwork? Absolutely, absolutely. I think um, particularly with my encaustic paintings, um, I'm constantly uh, conflating images and cropping and so forth. And when I look at them myself, but I've also heard from a few people, sometimes they're, they're theatrically revved up a bit. And I know that some of that early desire and those impulses as an actor kind of naturally comes into the work somehow. I, it's It was not uh, something that I consciously understood, but I know that that's a part of it. 
Yeah. When did you discover encaustic painting? I discovered encaustic painting in, let me see, I'd say maybe about 2003, something like that. 2002, three. In the very beginning, I was making very, very small paintings and um, putting collage into the encaustics, things like layering paper or drawings and then waxing over them and kind of uh, timidly doing carving on the side of it. And um, I'd say very quickly, within maybe a year and a half, I fully embraced just the wax because it's so malleable that I stopped doing integrations of collage at that point. So, and it was just, it just felt perfect, you know, in spite of some of the, the aspects of encaustic that I don't love, like the fumes, but. Yeah, well, naturally, um, the fumes are a challenge to get around. Um, you know, I was curious about uh, what other artists have influenced you or influenced your art generally. Um, I, you know, I tend to notice a strong affinity to Diego Rivera. Definitely, I'd say Diego um, Rivera, Siqueiros, Orozco, all of those muralists. Um, I'd also say that a big influence for me was the work of Romare Bearden. You know, I remember seeing his work and just like being in awe of cut, scored, carefully uh, contemplated um, interplays of paper, action, people, history. All of that definitely influenced uh, some of my desire to uh, approach work in the way that I did and still do. Um, I'd also say that uh, many of the German expressionists come into my work, you know, um, even in the encaustics, but particularly with drawings that I make from time to time. I, I love that it allows, it, it allows the freedom to just be very spontaneous in the way that I put, put down an image and break it up or crop it or you know, I'm not saying that it's a direct um, uh, reflection in the encaustics, but it definitely has influenced the work to some degree. Um, who else can I say? Um, um, I'd like to say Jacob Lawrence, but I'm not sure about that. Kathy Kolwitz, um, definitely. And I, when I think of my sculptural practice, um, definitely Keenholz. Um, love all of that. The work of Ben Sean, um, I, I was always very drawn to his work and a whole slew of others. Yeah. Now I know that um, encaustic painting is a very involved process uh, on a very top of the waves level. Can you describe your encaustic painting process for us? Yes. Um, it all starts in my sketchbook. You know, I look at the news, I'll listen to podcasts, or I'll read stories. I'm constantly clipping little headlines of things that I actually want to talk about or interrogate. And then I'll do um, excerpts from some of the images that I see and put them in my sketchbook with verbal notes and things like that. Things that I can refer to later after I've laid down my first two initial layers of neutral wax. Um, I start with a three-quarter panel 
of Luann wood and then I uh, I don't pour wax I actually take um, hog hair brushes and I layer it on on the panels I work up about two layers of that burning each layer because that's how you make it stick that you know and the inclusion of the debar varnish um, and then after I do that I make it as flat as I can and I start to draw and that's when I have an opportunity to go back to the sketchbook and the thing that I also love about encaustic is that when you make a drawing if you don't like it it's so easy just to burn that image with a heat gun or a torch to reflatten that area um, and you know encaustic the very meaning of it is to burn and um, after a drawing is done I have an opportunity to then go into the colored, the pigmented wax um, layers that are going to go on it, and I have to burn each layer. But I can scrape it back, I can have areas of thick and thin. Um, when it comes to the wax itself, I'm going to backtrack and tell you that I start with microcrystalline uh, wax, sometimes I'll put beeswax into it with Damar crystals and then I take dry pigments and I put that into the wax. Uh, stir it up and then I have a whole series of brushes of sizes and those can go into the drawings and I just sort of play with the different sizes of brushes as I go along. Um, once I've done that over a considerable portion of the panel, I can start the burning process. Um, I use either a torch or a heat gun, um, but I prefer a heat gun. It's, it's safer. <laughs> and I'll do that, and um, I just keep doing that. At the very end, I look for the levels that I want to sort of recede so I can scale back certain portions of it, and I do a final burn. Um, after I've applied some dry pigments on the top. And I do put, a lot of encaustic artists um, don't put a finish on their works, but I do because it protects it. It's pretty enduring, but I find that it helps, so. Regina, what is it about uh, encaustic painting that draws you so much? Like, why is that uh, one of your uh, media of choice? Well, I, I, I kind of, when I think about it, oddly enough, it encaustic, the idea of layering wax, uh, embedding imagery in that, works in tandem with this idea of the muck and the joy of history, like all of the, 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 the visceral aspects of how you need the good and the horror of life in order for life to exist. It's terrible to say that, but that somehow wax involves smothering, layering, hiding, revealing. And I feel like there, there's sort of a synergy between that and the content of the work, the subjects that I interrogate and uh, the things, the, the, the points that I'm trying to make across panels. Um, the way that I encourage the viewer to look for those connectors from one area to the other. Um, it's, it's all connected somehow. So somehow intuitively I understood that, which is part of the draw of wax. The other part of it is that it is so revealing. It has a luminosity about it that's 
infectious in a way. And it's very forgiving, which I think I've mentioned before. You can do all kinds of things with it and you can completely get rid of it if you don't want it and build it up in another layer. And um, that's what brought me to it. Um, those first few early experiments taught me how malleable it really is. So. Wow. <laughs> now, there's a really great nugget, a uh, great share from you. Um, you know, I love that sense of process coinciding with content and the term synergy used is really beautiful. Um, when you think about the themes of your work, there's a lot of great social commentary. Uh, it also feels like there's a lot of great historical contextualization. Uh, it all seems to revolve around this theme of talking about the human condition and exploring the recesses of the, recesses of the mind. Um, I love to hear how you come up with the themes in your work. Well, um, I, you know, since there is a part of me, like a lot of artists that um, are interested or vested in, I don't want to say social change, but, you know, we're interested in interrogating the, the ills of the world that don't quite work. Um, for me, the human condition is something that is it's a phenomena that is not paid enough attention to and I feel that there are so many things that just don't make sense about the way things work in the world and I'm interested in bringing those things to light it's it's not as if I'm making a painting with a pure intention of having anyone change their mind. That's not my job. My job is to put content on a panel that will invite a viewer to just at least think about something, you know, think about a particular issue. And I'm interested in issues. I'm interested in issues that defy any kind of real reason, any real sense. And usually the, the stories that um, I just think are really ludicrous are the ones that make it onto the panel. You know, whether that means uh, looking at um, oppression in the form of labor misuse or oppression as it pertains to gender inequities or oppression as it pertains to basic needs. You know, those are the things that captivate me the most. I try not to be hyper specific about things you know i think it's it's enough to introduce a particular topic and then allow the viewer to just make up their own mind about it um i do um have an affinity for symbolism so i use a lot of that and coding in my works again always working with this intention of providing content that will allow the viewer to make connections across the panel. In other words, what does this part of the narrative say about this other part of the narrative? Like a puzzle, a little bit. So I invite the viewer to sort of decode that, and that's how I view it. Even as I make the work, I'm doing that myself, which is why I never, ever have any idea fully fleshed out ahead of time. It's just ideas. And then I add and I change and I... You know, when I visited you last in your studio, you talked about how you always put a portal in your work. Let's chat about that. 
Yeah, the portal. The portal. I have a watcher in my work, everyone, uh, usually if a woman. And the portal is a pathway into the underbelly of the issue. The portal is invariably in the center of the piece, um, right below the watcher. And it serves as just a segue into the dysfunctional aspect of the narrative. So I start with um, maybe the origin um, and then sort of pit systems of power alongside of systems of oppression. And usually at the bottom level, um, you know, as one makes its way through the portal, you arrive at causal things you know I kind of look at it that way they're all structured that way I don't know why but uh, you know that's changing but in general you know Regina there's one work that you have I'm going to try and describe it here it's uh, got shattered glass on it and there are two figures uh, in front of a television can you describe that work um, for us and, and what was your inspiration for doing it well this piece um I was sitting with someone that I used to know, uh, was not someone I knew well, and we were watching a TV uh, news broadcast, who knows, I don't know whether it was CNN, I don't know what it was, but we were watching, and I think the watching of that show was prompted by me, most likely, and this person was um, kind of looking, but all of a sudden on the screen there was a car bombing. It was an image of this car bombing, and it just it just caught me. It just was like, whoa, you know, and as if I was standing in front of it, I was just appalled by it, but I think I was more appalled by the non-reactiveness of the person I was sitting next to, who was painting her toenails. And it became a snapshot in my head, the, the lunacy, the ludicrous reality of, you know, us eating snacks, which included popcorn and wine, and her painting her toenails through my jump, so to speak. And within the um, this news broadcast, it was a car bombing. So it's not as if I saw all of the shards of glass, but I think in my mind, I knew that that's how I wanted to depict it. And sometimes that happens, you know, I'm just contemplating a story and I see one major element that I want to come into it, which is why in this piece the car glass came into it. I knew it was a car bombing. I didn't see it on the screen, but I knew I wanted an implosion somehow. And um, yeah, I think that may have been the last time I ever saw that person. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> wow, that's really fantastic. Thank you. Um, how do you decide if a piece is going to be a painting or a sculpture or a drawing? Very good question. Um, I believe sometimes I have a narrative in my head or story that I don't believe should be depicted in a wax panel. You know, maybe I have an idea of something that is more about form and shape and um, the an abject in a way, and sometimes that could only come to fruition in the in the form of three dimensionality. 
Um, so I, I, that's, I have to think about that question. I'm so glad that you asked. I, I don't know if I overtly say, oh, it has to be this or, or that, but sometimes these socio-political meaning constructions can only take shape through a sculpture somehow, you know? And um, since I'm working with conflations of wood, wax, and steel, those things too symbolize this idea that I am trying to touch on in the, the panels of strength, dominance, and fragility as well. So, you know, there have been occasions where I've tried it in a panel and it didn't quite work, and then I do it in a sculpture. Very few, but there have been in those occasions. Perfect. Um, I'm also curious, how do you make your color decisions? Um, and I'm, I'm really curious about that across all media because you have this one sculpture you shared me where you said you saw the interior as red. Well, you know, color for me is, um, especially in the sculptures, it's all driven by symbolism. You know, blue, red is violence, you know, I mean, obviously, usually for me, or just just like um, um, a, f a friction of some sort. So invariably, if I'm getting at that, some kind of heat is going to come into it, into the core of the sculpture. Um, if you notice with a lot of my sculptures, the interior of it, the it's another portal, these are portals as well, are always red or, you know, some kind of a strange glow. Um, when I infuse patinas into the wax, uh, silvers, blue metallics, um, that's power, that's strength. So um, I look at color um, that way somehow. You know, what, it, what is it? Is it strength? Is it oppression? Is it fragility? You know, and I always, on the, in the sculptures, I almost always stick with things like electric blues and reds and golds and, you know, not a lot of color in the sculptures. You know, metal, glow. Wow, that was perfect. You know, we touched upon this mural aspect of your work and certainly in invoking Diego Rivera as an influence, that's really what comes to mind. But, you know, I'd like to ask you directly, like, what is the driving force behind structuring your work as a mural? Well, um, the, for a long time, I never acknowledged them as murals. In fact, I almost hated that association of them. But then if I or when, rather, I looked at my influences and the artists and movements in art that I was drawn to, I thought, well, yeah, of course, these have a mural-like <laughs> read. Um, but they're stories, you know, they're storyboards, they're stories, that's, they're glimpses into a narrative. For me, it's, it's a, a visual language and I think that that's why they do sort of connote the idea of a mural to, to an extent, because murals historically tell stories. They involve, uh, or rather they, they get at evolutions in time and place, so in history. 
So, and I feel like I am in these encaustic paintings, I am crossing boundaries of time, space, regions. I'm doing that too. I don't like to think of them actively as murals, but I, I recognize that they are doing that. Regina, what has been your lowest point as an artist? Oh, my lowest point as an artist, um, I think has been the awareness that I live in a city that's highly conceptual in terms of um, how art is seen and revered and my work sometimes isn't seen because it's not necessarily conceptual. You know, maybe the sculptures approach that. Um, so that has been a source of angst for me. And then how about the inverse? A high point, like especially if it's a high point of creativity or productivity? Yes. Well, uh, I'd have to say um, I am absolutely elated when the ideas are just flowing and I almost, it's effortless. I don't have to think about it. It's just pouring out of me. Sometimes, especially with sculptures, I just know like this is an absolutely the way it's supposed to evolve without even um, any clear idea. I just, it just works and I just know it. And I know when the piece is done. Uh, with paintings, um, when I have those moments of, oh yeah, I get why I put this in. You know, if I've, if I've, if I've ever gotten to that point of feeling a little hesitant about something that I'd include, but then later I have this moment of, yeah, that's why, of course, that's why it was supposed to be there and I made the right move. You know, I've noticed with your drawings, it's a lot less about a story and it's more about focusing in on an individual. So how do you think about your drawing practice broadly? Like how does it fit into your broader art practice? And, and when do you turn to it? When do you turn to drawing? Drawing offers me an opportunity to explore an idea for a larger painting. Um, and sometimes drawings, or many times drawing, offers me an opportunity to just play with surface. You know, like even just scribbling, you know, even if I don't know what it's in service to, that sometimes that energy of, of line making or mark making will come into a painting somehow, just in terms of how I use line, which is why I prefer just the freedom to just draw over things and just, you know, um, apply extreme gestures and just very crude mark making. I like that for what it illuminates later. That is really great. You know, I'd love to hear about um, how you make decisions regarding materials uh, in your sculptures. And I love the exploration of how things will fall apart without really falling apart. So I'll take something that's very fragile, strengthen it, and then in a sense, destroy it just to have that, that play somehow. Because I am always doing that same thing, playing with ideas of fragility and strength. So sometimes I have to destroy something to get at that, you know, and then build it up again, you know, ugly beauty. I like the challenge of the impossible with material. 
You know, I think what is great in that description is that it's the antipodes, the kind of the, the polar opposites of a lot of these concepts like fragility and strength. Well, Regina, this has been an absolutely amazing conversation. I, I can't thank you enough. Uh, really have enjoyed this. All right. Great. <laughs> thank you. That was great. You're welcome. <laughs> thank you. Achieve is recorded at Subtractive and Hangar 8 at the Santa Monica Airport. Music is produced by Hennedy.